Welcome back. Over the next 90 minutes, we will discuss the epidemiology and burden of sepsis. We have a fabulous lineup of speakers, and the session is chaired by Tex Kisun from Canada. If you want to listen to one specific speaker, please use the chapter markers. If you want to see the presentations of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for WSC Spotlight there. Now, let me hand it over to Tex to get this session going. Tex, take it away. Hello. Uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night, wherever you may be. I am Tex Kasoon. I am the uh, Vice President of the Global Sepsis Alliance, and I'm very pleased to chair the session. Uh, we'll be discussing the global burden of uh, 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 sepsis and the epidemiology of sepsis, um, uh, a condition that has plagued many all over the world. But because of the concerted effort of many, including some of the speakers today, uh, we will be uh, understanding a little bit more and um, uh, realize um, what needs to be done in the future. Um, before uh, introducing our first speaker, um, I would like to uh, let everyone know that all sessions are recorded and will be released for free on YouTube and as a podcast, an Apple podcast. They will be released weekly on Tuesdays, starting with the opening session on the 15th of September. Now, our first speaker um, is uh, Dr. Christina Rudd, a pulmonary and critical care physician and a researcher in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, you have heard a little of um, um, what she's going to say and her study from Alexandro's previous talk. Uh, without further ado, uh, I will turn it over to Christina to give us the keynote address on this session on the global burden of sepsis. Christina, welcome. Thank you so much, Tex, and um, thank you everyone for the invitation and, and opportunity to speak today. I have no financial disclosures to report. I feel it's really critical from the outset of um, a session on global sepsis epidemiology um, to remind ourselves that sepsis risk is impacted by far more than an individual's comorbidities or their immune response to infection. And while we frequently focus on these features, it's important to keep in mind that all of these layers from interpersonal to organizational, community, or even society level factors ultimately impact an individual sepsis risk, and this is what's driving global sepsis epidemiology. The data on the global burden of sepsis that I'm going to show today comes from the IHME sepsis study, um, which I was privileged to help lead and was published earlier this year. Um, the purpose of the IHME sepsis study was to estimate sepsis incidence and mortality across 195 countries and territories, 282 underlying causes, both sexes, and 23 age groups for the years 1990 through 2017. Um, this was a collaboration between the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, or IHME, and the global sepsis community. This is a schematic of our methodologic approach. I'm very briefly going to walk through our methods, um, highlighting aspects that I think are particularly relevant um, to our interpretation of the study results. 
So as our base, um, this study um, leveraged the Global Burden of Diseases, Injuries, and Risk Factors Study, or GBD, um, 2017 principles, data, and modeling infrastructure. Um, GBD is considered the world's largest global health database. It has more than 80,000 input data sources and produces more than 1 billion estimates. Um, we used the GBD 2017 cause of death estimates as the base of the mortality estimates for the sepsis project. So once we had that information on the estimated cause of death for every death that happens um, worldwide each year, we then needed to understand what proportion of those deaths were also associated with sepsis. So to do this, we performed a multiple cause of death analysis. We used death certificates that had more than one underlying cause of death listed. So this due to this, due to this, due to this as the cause of death. And for that analysis, we had access to 109 million um, death records from four countries worldwide. And then we labeled those death records as either not sepsis related or an explicit sepsis death or an implicit sepsis death. The explicit sepsis deaths were one where somebody who was filling out the death certificate actually wrote down the word sepsis and there was a sepsis associated ICD code there. An implicit sepsis death was one where there was an infection listed as the underlying cause and a specific organ dysfunction ICD code listed as an intermediate or an immediate cause of death. Using these multiple cause of death um, death certificates, we then calculated cause, age group, sex, year, and location-specific sepsis fractions. And we used these to model sepsis fractions for locations without input data um, using a healthcare access and quality index as our major covariate. We then multiplied and modeled these fractions um, um, I'm sorry, we then multiplied the model fractions um, by GBD 2017 um, death estimates to calculate the number of sepsis-related deaths. And then we added up these estimates for each of those little stratum um, to produce our overall um, global, regional, and national estimates for sepsis-related mortality. Next, we turn to incidence estimation um, using hospital data with multiple causes of hospitalization recorded at the individual level. We again labeled each admission as explicit sepsis, implicit sepsis, or non-sepsis in exactly the same way that we did in the multiple cause of death analysis. Um, we then took only the sepsis cases, of which there were 8.7 million from 10 countries, and we calculated among those um, the in-hospital sepsis-associated case fatality rate, how many of these people died. Um, and then we again modeled case fatality rate in a, in this, a very similar way um, to how we did for the mortality estimates um, for locations without input data. Lastly, we combined the sepsis mortality estimates with our modeled in-hospital case fatality rates to produce estimates of sepsis incidence within each stratum and then globally. So here are our major results. Um, we estimate that there are 48.9 million incident cases of sepsis worldwide each year as of 2017, with 11 million um, associated deaths. And this represents nearly 20% of all global deaths in 2017. 
Incidence varies substantially by location, with age standardized rates per 100,000 population varying as much as 20-fold between locations on this map. The highest rates are seen in countries with the lowest healthcare access and quality. As an example, the United States has an estimated approximately 250 incident cases per 100,000 population each year. Brazil has 450. And the highest rate in the world, the Central African Republic, with over 2,000 incident cases um, per 100,000 population annually. This is a map showing the percentage of all deaths in each location that are related to sepsis. And again, you can see large differences um, with over 50% of all deaths that are actually related to sepsis in some uh, sub-Saharan African countries. This figure um, shows the percentage of all deaths that are related to sepsis by age group as of 2017. Um, moving left to right across the x-axis, we start in the neonatal period and move to um, those who are 95 years um, or older. And you can see this general trend that in the neonatal period, a very high proportion of all deaths are associated with sepsis. That proportion declines into middle adulthood and then we see a second, albeit um, smaller rise in the later adult period in those who are in their 60s, uh, 70s, and 80s. One thing we were really interested in in, uh, in this study was understanding what was driving um, these sepsis cases as their underlying cause. We know that sepsis is, is of course, always caused by an acute infection and the body's um, host response to that. Um, but we know that actually um, in over half of all of these deaths, there was a non-infectious underlying cause, a non-communicable disease such as COPD, diabetes, um, cirrhosis, or an injury like a road traffic accident that immediately led to that death. These are not just listed as comorbidities on the death certificate. These were actually listed as the underlying causes. So for example, someone was hit by a car they developed a wound infection from that accident, and that wound infection is what went on to precipitate their sepsis. And actually, when we looked across the 282 underlying causes, um, and in this um, figure, we listed the top 20 causes uh, of sepsis in uh, 1990, 2007, and 2017. I just wanted to point out some trends rather than kind of absolute numbers. So what we found was that pneumonia was the most common underlying cause of sepsis in every year from um, 1990 through 2017, diarrheal diseases was, um, were also a very common cause. But then we see a lot of these non-communicable diseases in purple. Again, these are things like stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic kidney disease. So in conclusion, um, there are significant disparities in sepsis incidence and mortality by location and across healthcare access and quality uh, index. We know that neonates and older adults are at higher risk for sepsis-associated death. Um, and over half of all sepsis-related deaths are among patients with an underlying chronic disease or an injury that directly contributed to that death. 
It's important to note that like much of IHME's other work, um, this is considered an ongoing project um, with plans for iterative improvements to the methods and updates to the input data. Um, so with my just last minute, I wanted to briefly touch on this. So as you saw, um, we used ICD codes um, both in our mortality estimation on the death certificates and in our incidence estimation in identifying those hospital records. Um, and we are continuing to revise and refine these list of ICD codes to make them as accurate as possible. Um, the second thing that we're doing is working on uh, adding input data from more locations, particularly with a broader spread of healthcare access and quality index. Um, we were necessarily limited to the data that we had in our first round, and we would really like to see better representation, both from the death records and the hospital records. Thirdly, um, our group from the beginning has had this conversation about um, whether or not it counts as sepsis if you die from an infection, regardless of what is written on your death certificate. Um, ultimately, the for the first round, as I mentioned, we ended up requiring that somebody also wrote down an organ dysfunction code as an immediate or intermediate cause of death. But we're revisiting this, um, and I would love to hear um, others' thoughts on that um, today in, in terms of whether we should should indeed be counting every infection death as a sepsis-related death. Um, with that, I will stop, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you very much, Christina. That was a very erudite presentation and uh, very clear of a very complex uh, issue. Um, one of the issues you mentioned, the final uh, issue of um, is every infection count as sepsis. And I think that that has been one that has a uh, uh, sort of had um, a question raised by many of our colleagues across the world. For instance, the deaths from malaria, um, the, do all deaths from malaria, even if there's organ dysfunction, relate to sepsis? What is your opinion on that? That is a great point. I think malaria and, and the other um, kind of category of diseases that we have a lot of conversation about, both internally within a, within the author group, as you well know, text being part of that, and, and externally in terms of our, our infectious disease or um, critical care experts around the world, um, we also have a lot of consideration to diarrheal diseases. Um, we you know, traditionally, sepsis was viewed as uh, the body's response to a bacterial infection. I believe that the science has evolved to the point where we, we now understand that non-bacterial infections, such as viral infections, and there's going to be a lot of conversation today about the host response to viral infections, um, such as SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, um, does that count as sepsis? Um, as the body goes through this dysregulated host immune response, should we be considering that to be sepsis? I believe so in some cases. Um, if somebody dies because of the um, microvascular effects of malaria, I'm not so sure we should be counting that. But the issue is, how do we tease that out um, through ICD codes? That's incredibly difficult. Um, similarly to diarrheal diseases, if someone dies as a you know due to their dehydration, does that count? I don't know. But might somebody go into um, multi-organ failure as a complication of their immune response? Yeah. Uh, and so I think we are stuck with this conundrum. Um, and what we ultimately decided for this project is we wanted to use a consistent approach 
regardless of the underlying cause. And we were very thoughtful, had a lot of discussions um, about what infections would, would count as an underlying cause. And for this initial round, we did include malaria and we did include diarrheal diseases, um, but it's something we continue to discuss. No, I think, I think as you rightly pointed out, this uh, with its warts and all will be um, uh, an ongoing process. And I look forward to it. And I think uh, it is going to be very important, especially in this era of uh, COVID, as you mentioned. Yes, so absolutely. I'd, like, I'd like to thank you very much um, for uh, being with us this morning. And uh, thank, you. I, thank you. I'd like to turn to the, uh, the next speaker who is, um, uh, will be speaking to us on the burden of maternal sepsis in fragile populations. Uh, she's uh, Zenaida uh, Residoro from the National Safe uh, Mother Program Department of Health in Philippines. Uh, Zenaida is a nurse um, uh, um, by profession with a degree in Master's in Public Health. So I'll turn it over now to Zenaida. Thank you so much and hello from the Philippines. Let me present my discourse on the burden of maternal sepsis in fragile populations. So what is maternal sepsis? We all know that maternal sepsis is a life-threatening condition that frequently complicates serious diseases and is a final common pathway to death. And despite being highly preventable, it continues to be a major cause of death and morbidity for pregnant and postpartum women. Who are likely to suffer from maternal sepsis? The answer is women in fragile populations. Fragility is a critical development challenge that threatens efforts to end extreme poverty, affecting both low and middle income countries to achieve better maternal health and overcome maternal death. Women in the disadvantaged subset of the population who are either in remote, hard to reach areas or urban poor communities are more likely to suffer from maternal sepsis. Sociocultural, economic, and geographical barriers often lead to variations which eventually result in inequity in health outcomes. Their distance and the lack of financial resource render it difficult to avail of health care when they need it. Major risk factors for maternal sepsis include poor environmental sanitation, lack of access to clean and safe water, poor access to quality maternal care, that can lead to late recognition of the signs and symptoms of infection and consequently late access to the right treatment. Likewise, maternal sepsis can be made more serious with poor infection control in health facilities. While the burden of maternal sepsis is difficult to ascertain, globally, pregnancy-related infections are the third most common cause of maternal death representing about 11% of all maternal deaths. Its burden is higher in low and middle income countries compa compared to high income countries. Among the low and middle income countries, the greatest burden is in South Asia with about 13.7% of maternal sepsis death and Sub-Saharan Africa with about 10.7%. Let me take you to the Philippines. According to the World Bank, the Philippines is one of the most vibrant economies in the East Asia-Pacific region and is classified as a middle-income country. As we have observed, 
Maternal sepsis is a manifestation of infection acquired in both the communities and hospitals, as shown by our data when we participated in the GLOSS initiative in 2017. 55% of the cases were admitted from home, 33% were suspected or diagnosed to have infection a day up to three days after admission, and 9% were diagnosed to have infection six to 17 days after admission. Our maternal mortality data is characterized by spikes that represent pain and suffering for children who will grow up without a mother. With only a decade left to meet the country's sustainable development goal target for maternal mortality, the number of women dying due to maternal causes increased from 1,484 in 2017 to 1,616 in 2018, resulting to a maternal mortality ratio of 108 per 100,000 live births. Maternal sepsis account for 9% of total maternal deaths during the period 2015 to 2016 and 6% during the period 2017 to 2018, or one in 11 maternal deaths was due to maternal sepsis in 2016 and in 2018, it was one in 17. What characterizes the women who died of maternal sepsis? The women were young. Their mean age is 30 years. They are less educated with an average 11, of 11 years of education. 47% of them were pregnant for the first time, while 27% were multigravid and multiparous. And among the contributing factors, 53% of them were not tracked during their pregnancy. And naturally, they were not given enough information about the danger signs of pregnancy and were not likewise navigated to a health center for maternal care such as ANC. And despite abortion being absolutely illegal, 7% had induced unsafe abortion. The factors leading to death are interconnected. Not being tracked can lead to not having ANC and no birth plan. That includes planning and negotiating for transport that impacts on timeliness of medical care. Maternal sepsis deaths also highlight major gaps in the health system, as 20% of those who died were not managed at the primary level birthing centers and first level referral hospital for lack of specialists who has the, comp the competence to manage the case. The restricted policy on abortion and the belief that contraception um, violates the sanctity of life leads, uh, leads to couples' ambivalence about family planning and contraception. The 7% who died of sepsis due to induced abortion were actually all in their 40s, married, not practicing family planning, and were on their fourth pregnancy, which made the maternal death review teams to conclude that these women, most of them poor, were, being un were having unwanted pregnancies that made them decide to undergo illegal and unsafe abortion and eventually died. It is heartbreaking to note that women give life in motherhood but in the process, some lost their own lives due to maternal complications. It has been noted that the consequences of maternal death are difficult to measure, 
because the event is rare. But among, among the consequences of maternal death are those that relates to health and nutrition, survival of children, education, and family life. As to health and nutrition, newborns and children whose mothers died from maternal causes are likely to suffer from nutrition deficits and less likely to access needed health care. A study also observed increased mortality risk for children aged 0 to 9 years old. And as for education, older children are more likely to drop out of school to care for younger siblings or do farm work or enter the labor force despite the work beyond their capacity and age. Some of them opt to migrate to the cities in search for better opportunities. As to family life, family fragmentation is a common substory following maternal death. Well, similar to most countries, every Filipino girl born alive is given 75 years of life. But with our women of reproductive age dying young due to maternal causes, young children face the prospect of growing up without a mother making their vulnerability of serious national concern at the same time that the country tackles the economic impact of losing 33 to 58 years or an average of 45 productive years of life lost among women. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow health workers, that is the burden of maternal sepsis and fragile population. Thank you. Are there questions? Hey, thank you very much, Zenaida. Um, yeah, I have a question. Um, obviously, the maternal physiology is different during pregnancy and in the postpartum period, including um, heart rate, blood pressure, um, uh, white blood count, etc. Um, how is maternal sepsis um, diagnosed? In the Philippines, well, usually they diagnosed by um, medical. Ex physical examination, as well, the vital signs, I mean, as well as laboratory tests, the, um, the identification of the bacteria that, that leads to the diagnosis of infection. But uh, I would acknowledge the fact that there are some maybe infections that are not diagnosed well. That is why we have, um, we actually have a very low uh, sepsis cases. So it's only, it was only 6% in, in 2018. Let's see. Okay. And what percentage of hospitals or um, um, sort of um, deliveries in the Philippines are uh, um, non-clean deliveries, would you say? Um, well, our facility delivery has increased through the years. It is now 86% of our women are giving birth in health facilities. But uh, we're also looking into the into the a quality of care issues. Um, but our doctors, they're, they're often using um, prophylactic antibiotics. I see. Okay, no, thank you very much for this very informative talk. Um, the next uh, topic thank we'll be so discussing, thanks very much. Uh, the next topic we'll be discussing is the burden of sepsis in children and um, in children and neonates, lesson learned from low and middle income countries. And it will be given by uh, Matthew Westerkamp, who is at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States. Uh, he, he's a trained epidemiologist with over 15 years experience in international public health research, surveillance, design, implementation, and infection prevention and control. So I'll turn it over to Matthew now. Thank you, sir, and good day, everyone. 
I'd like to thank the program uh, organizers for the opportunity to speak about the burden of sepsis in pediatrics and neonates and discuss a few of the lessons learned working in low and middle-income countries with the International Infection Control Program at CDC's Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion. Rather than a single diagnosis, sepsis is a syndrome characterized by organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. The underlying infections that lead to sepsis are many and can vary in different populations. The lack of consistency in etiology and limitations in objective diagnostic criteria make determining sepsis burden challenging. As we saw in the first presentation, by convention, we consider early life sepsis in three groups according to when the infection occurs. First, the early neonatal period, infections in about the first three days of life, the late neonatal period, about the first month of life, and childhood infections occurring in, after the neonatal period, but within the first five years of life. Using mortality-based estimates, sepsis in children before their fifth birthday represents over 40% of the total global burden. In 2017, an estimated 20.3 million children experienced sepsis, approximately 50% of which would not survive. While numbers will vary by estimation method, there can be no doubt that sepsis in children is a cause of substantial morbidity and mortality worldwide. The disproportionate burden of neonatal and childhood sepsis in some low and middle income setting highlights underlying political poverty, health and, health and equity, and health system limitations. Additionally, the inherent challenges of sepsis surveillance allow the surveillance to the syndrome to go under-recognized, affecting both prioritization of the multimodal public health efforts needed for prevention, as well as effective case recognition and treatment. Antimicrobial resistance and the emergence of untreatable infections has further complicated effective response in many resource-limited settings. The mission of CDC's International Infection Control Program is to protect patients, healthcare workers, and communities internationally by providing expertise to sustainably, sustainably address infectious disease threats related to healthcare delivery. Much of our work focuses on low and middle income countries where we collaborate with ministries of health and academic institutions to identify and address high priority public health threats associated with healthcare. One of these high priority public health threats is neonatal sepsis. Our focus on neonatal sepsis represents health ministry partner prioritization of the health of newborns and the recognition that neonatal sepsis to a greater degree than in older age groups more directly relates to healthcare delivery. While still complex and multifactorial, many of the underlying causes of infection related to childhood community exposures such as diarrheal disease, lower respiratory disease and malaria play less of a role in neonatal sepsis etiology. Building the capacities and supporting the healthcare systems to protect this vulnerable population can, we hope, be translated to protection for all. I will highlight three broad lessons learned working on neonatal sepsis-related issues. The importance of thoughtful investment in healthcare workers, the impacts of strengthening basic infection prevention and control in preventing infections that ultimately lead to sepsis, and finally, ensuring laboratory diagnostics to provide better estimates of sepsis burden and monitoring progress. Investment in training and education of healthcare workers, especially nurses and frontline clinicians, is critical for the prevention of healthcare-associated sepsis and improving patient outcomes. The Comprehensive Unit-Based Safety Program, or CUSP, 
developed at Johns Hopkins, takes a broad foundational approach to healthcare worker improvement by fostering an understanding of safety culture. With a team from Hopkins, CUSP was piloted at four NICUs in Pune, India, with the goal of improved sepsis prevention as measured by decreased neonatal bloodstream infections. A hallmark of the CUSP approach is local safety team development of evidence-based multimodal interventions that are site-specific, collaborative by nature, and supportive in structure. In the Pune pilots, targeted areas include hand hygiene, improved aseptic technique, medication preparation, and equipment reprocessing. After one year, we found continued strong engagement across physician, nursing, and administrative groups with visible, visible evidence of self-directed changes in unit IPC practices. Challenges have included reliably measuring change in safety culture and the substantial time required to move from the culture change to development and implementation of the targeted interventions. The team has responded to multiple neonatal sepsis outbreaks in low and middle income healthcare settings. While each response is unique, lapses in IPC minimum standards have been a recurrent observation. Implementation of basic measures such as hand hygiene, surveillance for healthcare associated infections, improved infrastructure to help reduce overcrowding in maternity and neonatal units, and appropriate decontamination adherence to aseptic technique mitigate the risk of neonatal infections, however, are often observed to be suboptimal when responding to identified sepsis outbreaks. In 2019, WHO established minimal IPC standards that should be in place at both national and healthcare facilities to provide appropriate protection and safety to patients, healthcare workers, and visitors, all based on the WHO core components for IPC programs. These standards provide an excellent starting point for building the critical elements of effective infection prevention and control. However, challenges in the implementation of these standards can be many and sometimes seem insurmountable. In several cases, our outbreak response has offered the initial push needed to start the process towards ultimate improvement. Culture of relevant samples such as blood, urine, sputum, provide microbiologic confirmation of infections that give rise to sepsis. However, in many low- and middle-income countries, basic diagnostic modalities are lacking. This has led to the recognition of building local clinical microbiology laboratory capacity as an urgent priority. An illustrated an illustrative example of a successful laboratory capacity building initiative has been our partnership with the Ministry of Health in Vietnam. This initiative has three principal ex activities. Expert in external laboratory assessment, a long-term program for on-site training and mentorship, and establishment of an antimicrobial resistance surveillance network. In Vietnam, the establishment of the AMR network provided the drive and support for laboratory capacity building and has proven an excellent source for resource, knowledge, and skill sharing between the labs. A, qual a quality in Improve, uh, as quality improved to support AMR surveillance, utilization of laboratory services increased, helping ensure the availability of laboratory diagnostics. Along with similar interventions in other settings, laboratory capacity building proved valuable. However, the process required substantial time and resource investment. If these are the lessons we have learned, here are a few ways we look to moving forward. Investing in healthcare workers, continue to support programs that address the underlying culture and systemic elements that undermine effective infection prevention and patient safety. Invest in the long term, 
expect building safety culture and local ownership to take time, but expect this foundation to prove critical in sustained IPC improvement. Finally, accelerate healthcare worker recruitment and training in infection prevention by establishing IPC career pathways to support transitions from education and training into and throughout the workforce. Moving forward with strengthening IPC programs and best practices will require increased recognition and support of IPC as a distinct medical specialty. Defining IPC programs by the established WHO minimum standards and core competencies and improved support and commitment to water, sanitation, and hygiene wash standards. While improved microbial identification and resistance testing for sepsis is critical, matching better identification with appropriate and available antimicrobial agents will be a key to saving the lives of neonates moving forward. The impact of resistance and the role of untreatable infections in neonatal sepsis is only the beginning, is only beginning to be fully appreciated. In many low and middle income countries where laboratory diagnostics have been enhanced, the preponderance of classically assumed healthcare-associated gram-negative infections in even early-onset sepsis has caused a reevaluation of uh, etiology and prevention. Continued progress will require high-quality lab training, supply chain support, and committed funding with regional and international strategic coordination. And that's my time. I'd like to thank the CDC's International Infection Control Team for their support, our partners across the world that work every day to improve sepsis surveillance and prevention, and finally, the WHO Department of Integrated Health Services Infection Prevention Team for the opportunity to speak. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, uh, very much Matthew, for this, um, I guess, uh, very um, insightful overview in such a short period of time. I think one of the issues that... Um, the common thread throughout your talk is the issue of lack of resources and resources for um, infrastructure, um, sort of um, healthcare worker to patient ratio, uh, the issue of laboratory diagnosis, et cetera. Um, can you give us some idea of um, how do you um, motivate policymakers to make those changes in view of their lack of resources in many of um, the low and middle income countries? Yeah, I think there's a couple of kind of overall strategies that are used. One is drawing the connections between what we see with neonatal and pediatric sepsis and the overall uh, healthcare system. So supporting the the system, one of the, the first places you will see the impact is in these most vulnerable populations and in sepsis specifically. And that's often a way to 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 motivate the the specific uh, investment in in supporting the healthcare system to see the impact in this population. Um, we've also again seen these the um, response to outbreaks as being a good a strong way to start the process of improvement and um, protecting these these patients. No, thank you very much. Uh, uh, one other question. I think the issue of um, Technology, obviously, you spoke about um, bringing laboratory um, diagnostic techniques to low- and middle-income countries. In many cases, the cost is prohibitive. Um, do you, um, can you give us an idea of movements um, within uh, various organizations to really make these technologies available in the settings and where you have worked? 
Yeah, I think there's two parts to that question. One is, you know, new ways to diagnose these infections, sort of non-culture-based diagnostics. And and I, unfortunately, and that's not my my field. Um, when it comes to laboratory capacity building around uh, for standard microbiology, um, the 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 resources that bringing those resources is is done both can be done when the country when a, a setting sort of prioritizes microbiology, but it's also a, a regional approach. I think we've seen some some benefits with and that's when groups of groups of labs either within a country or within a region sort of get together and support one another to to move these things forward sort of uh, uh, with using scale to to promote these uh, improvements thank you very much for your time it's very important thank you yeah our next talk is um on challenges implementing sepsis and AMR and microbial resistance surveillance. And it's going to be given by Uduak uh, Okomo from the Medical Research Council Unit in the Gambia, who is now at the London School of Tropical, uh, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine um, as a clinical research fellow in maternal, newborn, uh, and, and newborn health within the vaccines and immunity theme. Uh, Uduak is a pediatrician and epidemiologist by training with more than 20 years experience in pediatrics and child health in West Africa. So I'll turn it over to Uduak now for her talk. Thank you. Greetings to everyone from the Gambia and thank you for joining us today. Um, the previous speakers have set the scene on the burden of sepsis and AMR and I'm going to be talking on challenges in implementing sepsis and AMR surveillance. So given the, glow, the huge global burden of sepsis, there's need to characterize the incidents, outcomes, and trends through surveillance. An accurate surveillance sepsis is essential to make meaningful comparisons across hospitals and geographic areas, especially as we've seen that there's a high burden in low- and middle-income countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. And we also need surveillance to properly interpret the impact of quality improvement initiatives from patient care, as well as to guide future research and resource investments. So one of the challenges in sepsis surveillance is the evolving clinical definitions. And sepsis is a heterogeneous clinical syndrome without a, a pathological reference or gold standard, if you may. And this allows for subjectivity and broad discretion in assigning diagnosis. The sepsis definitions have changed over the years. And you can see that the first adult sepsis definition was established in, 19, um, in 1992, followed by the second one in 2001. And the, the current definition for adult sepsis 3 was um, established in 2016. But however, this has been a focus on non-pregnant adults and other age groups are also affected, such as neonates, children, pregnant women, and each of these have their unique characteristics that don't permit extrapolation of definitions. For example, neonates and children have different physiology, immune responses to infection and comorbidities when compared with adults. And so while neonatal sepsis has a unique definition based on the presence of infection, the definition of pediatric sepsis has always been based on age-appropriate modification of, of adult sepsis criteria, and this has also always resulted in a lag 
in pediatric definitions. So like now we have the adult sepsis 3 and the studies are currently underway to apply sepsis 3 criteria to children. Another challenge is the limited applicability of sepsis definitions in low resource settings, which is dependent on the diagnostic capacity. And therefore, we need harmonized sepsis criteria for different settings. Another challenge is also defining sepsis for surveillance. So given the, globus, the enormous global burden on sepsis and the attendant interest from various stakeholders, there are multiple purposes for which sepsis must be defined. So clinical care, basic science, clinical research, including clinical trials, advocacy, public discourse, and epidemiology. So the current sepsis three criteria were primarily designed to facilitate clinical care. But the SOFA score included in the sepsis definition, this represents a hurdle in healthcare settings with limited laboratory services. And so it would be appropriate to have consider a stepwise or tiered case definition which would be able to be applied in low resource settings. Although we also know that it's given the complexity of defining sepsis currently, it's unlikely that a single set of criteria will be able to satisfy um, interested stakeholders. For example, clinicians require a sepsis definition that's optimized for sensitivity and rapid diagnosis and ease of real-time application because their goals are really early identification of cases, avoiding missed cases, and um, timely treatment. On the other hand, public health surveillance is to reliably track sepsis incidents and outcomes across settings over time to frame public health policy and research. And so although surveillance efforts must be clinically credible, they generally place less emphasis on timeliness and early identification, and rather they prioritize specificity, objectivity, reproducibility and sustainability for widespread implementation. Another important consideration is measurement burden. So for clinical care, measurement burden refers to the cost and safety of obtaining diagnostic tests for patients and the complexity of data interpretation. But for surveillance, measurement burden reflects the time and resources required to abstract the data and to apply case definitions on a population level. But whatever the case, um, criteria for clinical care and surveillance should have, have at least a moderate overlap, but they don't need to be perfectly matched. Yet another challenge is the reliability of sepsis data collection. So most epidemiologic studies of sepsis have relied on administrative claims data, but this method is limited by ongoing changes in how clinicians screen, test, and diagnose and bill for sepsis, and is mostly used in high-income countries. Death records, prospective registries, and analysis of sepsis randomized, sepsis, um, the um, usual care arms of sepsis randomized trials have also been used, but these remain subject to ascertainment bias and they're limited by heterogeneous inclusion criteria. In lower middle income countries, um, retrospective medical record reviews by trained physicians are what um, are methods applied, and these are rigorous, but they're not feasible for population level surveillance. 
Surveillance, sepsis surveillance using clinical data from electronic healthcare records is an objective approach, and this is applicable across large populations. And it may also offer improved clinical test characteristics when compared to administrative data and other sources. But it's not feasible in low-middle-income countries, mostly because it requires IT expertise and resources. And so we need um, to do further work on this to validate and refine this approach across diverse settings. So moving on to antimicrobial resistance, AMR is a major driver in the global burden of both healthcare-associated infections, sepsis, and sepsis in the community. However, the drivers and potential solutions for AMR are complex, and these also span multiple sectors. So currently, the international, the recognized response internationally to AMR advocates for a One Health approach, which is going to be further um, addressed in the next session. And so reliable estimates of current and future disease burden, they are essential to combat the global AMR crisis. AMR surveillance is performed through laboratory testing of microbial isolates, and these findings are needed to inform clinical therapy decisions, as well as guide policy recommendations and to inform treatment guidelines. So what are the, the challenges to implementing AMR, sepsis, um, AMR surveillance? And so these range from funding to resources and infrastructure, laboratory capacity, data capture, and representativeness. So most LMIC, um, in most LMICs, government funding is insufficient, and this leads to heavy dependence on external funding, such as WHO, USCDC, and the Fleming Fund, to name a few. And this is often competitive and fixed term. However, there's often poor and lack of commitment by the government, and even in facilities themselves, to embrace AMR as a healthcare issue, and therefore it doesn't get the attention it deserves. Also, weak supply chains for consumables, for microbiological laboratory procedures, and lack of human resources well-trained in AMR surveillance is a major issue. Um, in many places, there's limited availability of supporting, material, supporting material and training, even though WHO has a lot of training um, and documentation to assist countries. Many countries also lack the laboratories for surveillance, and where facilities exist, there's underutilization. And on the use of bacteriology diagnostics in routine clinical practice is a major barrier to implementation. Also, incorrect use of microbiological tests and, diagno and diagnostic tools can also affect data and subsequently um, surveillance. There's also the issue of diagnostic stewardship and which is making sure that laboratory samples are collected properly, they're tested properly, and they're interpreted according to standardized guidelines. And WHO has guidelines for diagnostic um, stewardship. So for example, ideally two or more sets of blood cultures should be obtained before antibiotic administration, but this is even challenging in developed countries. And there's also the, the, the issue of international guidance for um, interpretation of um, susceptibility data. Yes, another thing is how data is captured. So many countries lack the data management capacities to support effective surveillance, and they need to link clinical bacteria data with also patient mortality outcomes and patient information. And microbiology data may be available electronically, but clinical data sets are not. And um, clinical electronic data also suffers from data entry errors caused by staffing constraints.
And in many LMIC data, um, LMIC countries, um, data is collected manually in laboratory books. So AMAR doesn't respect borders. And so countries need to coordinate their actions with the rest of the global community. The WHO um, Global Antimicrobial Resistance Surveillance System promotes a shift from surveillance, which is based solely on laboratory data, and to a system that is includes epidemiological, clinical, and population-level data. And such data, epidemiological, clinical, and population-level data, are also needed for effective sepsis surveillance, as well as surveillance of specific diseases, such as vaccine-preventable diseases, pneumonia, meningitis. And so this implies that there are potential synergies for sepsis and AMR surveillance, together with relevant existing disease um, systems. So just to conclude, sepsis and AMR are interlinked and they're high global health priorities which require accurate and reliable surveillance. And these in turn are dependent on robust national surveillance platforms. And so with that, I'd like to stop here and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you very much, Udak. I think that was a, a you know, a very sort of, um, sort of rapid um, sort of uh, journey through a very complex, two complex issues. Um, one of the issues um, um, you raise is the issue of subjectivity in diagnosis of sepsis. And I think yeah. the issue in um, low and middle income countries, as you rightly pointed out, is the issue of, um, I guess, resource limitations in many um, areas. Um, but the issue of the definition of sepsis you raise is that a definition, as you rightly pointed out, is um, a presumed infection and um, organ dysfunction. And I think that the definition um, is not in question. Is it not really the uh, taking a definition and operationalize it in various settings that is really poses the problems when there are limited resources to uh, recognize organ dysfunction? Um, I think it actually it's, um, it's a, a function of both of them. And so the fact is that you know, with each new definition, it also takes time for other settings to apply this definition. And so if you're going to conduct global surveillance, for example, you might have different groups, different regions using different definitions, and that would challenge pooling together of data. But yes, again, as you have mentioned, it's important that these, whatever definitions are available, are applied. And in many LMICs, the um, the capacity to apply those the the diagnostic criteria is a is a challenge in itself. Uh, yeah. Now, one of the issues I think that um, obviously um, uh, antimicro antimicrobial resistance is a major concern, and it has been uh, sort of highlighted as one of the WHO uh, a top ten global threats. And yet, as you pointed out, um, we still have not really um, uh, risen to the occasion in many areas of the world. And my question is, can you give us an idea of areas um, that have done it well and what will made them successful um, and any lessons that you can um, uh, give to other areas undertaking this journey? Okay, so for, for most countries, I think um, you, you do have a lot of countries in um, high-income countries that have been able to do this. And that's the most important thing is that they have recognized at the government level that it is a national priority. So without mentioning any countries, but they have recognized it as um, a national priority. 
And so there is um, the requisite government support through funding to be sure that the laboratories have the capacity and that um, people are trained to actually conduct this. And there are also measures in place because AMR surveillance ha also has to work hand in hand with antimicrobial stewardship, which is going to be talked on later. And so there are also um, systems in place to manage the use of antibiotics while also having capturing the data <laughs> on their use and antimicrobial resistance. And so I think that's important, getting the governments to see it as a national priority because it's first a national thing before it becomes a global issue. Now, I think this might be a little tough question, final question. Um, how do you get governments to change? Is there any sort of, um, uh, sort of um, advice you have for those who are advocating for change um, to the governments? I like the fact that you said that it's a difficult question. I think if we all knew how to get governments to change, there's so many things that would have changed in the world. But I think the most important thing is like what we're doing with this um, spotlight is to get the message across as much as possible. I know scientists are not always the best people to communicate with government, but I think we need to try and we need to engage more with, um, with policymakers, how that is done, um, I've not yet figured it out. I'm sure if I do, I might patent the approach and leave clinical practice. But yes, I think that's what needs to be. We need to get the message across on every possible platform. And I think the more the message is out there and people are aware, then we're going to get groups that might advocate and there are people that would know how to push the right buttons in the right places. Okay, thank you very much. We'll stay tuned. The final talk uh, on this session will be given by Dr. Flavia Machado, who is um, uh, from the Global Sepsis Alliance, but also she's a professor of intensive care and chair of the intensive care session of anesthesiology pain uh, and intensive care in the department, in intensive care department at the Federal University of Sao Paulo in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And she has been one of the architects and has been working with the Latin America Sepsis Institute since its foundation in nine, uh, 2005, she'll be talking about the drivers of inequalities and the burden of sepsis in uh, low and middle income countries. Flavia, over to you. Hello, uh, thank you very much for the kind invitation, Tex. Uh, we're going to address uh, uh, some, some aspects of the drivers of inequalities uh, in low and middle income countries. And uh, we know that uh, both incidence and outcomes of sepsis are determined by uh, uh, major uh, domains like uh, the pathogen uh, and uh, in the other domains we do have uh, problems with disparities. Uh, certainly disparities are important uh, in the host because we do have differences in the health, uh, uh, basic health uh, care uh, in low and middle income countries which turns a chronic illness uh, a worst, uh, have a, having a worse scenario. We have poverty, malnutrition. We do have disparities regarding uh, the guidelines that not always address low and middle income countries, the insufficient research on sepsis in the settings, but the major issues are related to the healthcare system with uh, poor uh, vaccination rates, poor sanitation and hygiene, low awareness about sepsis. Uh, and certainly a lot of aspects related to the lack of resource, inadequate process of care, and uh, also 
higher rates of uh, 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 healthcare-associated infections and multi-drug resistance, as my nicely addressed uh, before. So uh, it is uh, expected, I would say, uh, the fact that uh, the nice study that Christina presented to us today showed the differences uh, in the burden. And uh, a uh, important finding is the association of the incidence and most, even more, mortality with the social demographic index, showing that, yes, uh, we are certainly affected by uh, where we are. But we should not say that uh, it's, uh, disparities are only present in low- and middle-income countries. We have a lot of data coming from high-income countries, with, which means disparities within a country, uh, compromising uh, sepsis care, for instance, in underserved areas in the United States, in, pa in patients that are lacking insurance coverage, uh, in black people, and uh, in patients with low income and low education levels. So this is a huge problem, not only uh, in low and middle income countries, and certainly all these issues were uh, stressed by COVID pandemics. Uh, we have heard that uh, the black people are dying two, three, four times uh, more frequently than white people in the US. And there's a lot of discussion about race, but there are also many information, uh, many studies showing us that when you adjust, for instance, for aspects uh, such as insurance coverage, comorbidities, neighborhood deprivation, this higher mortality rate for COVID in black people in the US just disappear. Again, uh, just social inequalities and not racial differences. This year, the Latin American Sepsis Institute based the campaign for the uh, uh, World Sepsis Day on the four pillars uh, in uh, approaching sepsis, which is prevention, recognition, treatment, and rehabilitation. And uh, we can certainly find uh, inequalities in each of these pillars. First, prevention. There is a clear difference in vaccination coverage uh, when you compare, for instance, high-income countries and low-income countries, middle-income countries. And it is also different, the impact that this project, Gavi is a multi-institutional project supported also by WHO, uh, that is uh, working to improve vaccination rates in middle-income countries. So you see that there is a possibility to change, but the difference between the coverage, for instance, for pneumococcal vaccine in high-income countries is totally different from the one in middle-income countries. This is also nicely shown by this report, again from WHO, showing, for instance, that this was the expected vaccination rate if there is no uh, inequality. And this is, for instance, data coming from Nigeria, showing that house use, uh, household uh, economical status is one of the drivers for not being adequate in terms of vaccination coverage. And certainly, it's very hard to prevent infection if you do not have resources for this. And this, again, was nicely shown by this study coming from Africa. Uh, we, are talking about, we are not talking about ICUs, renal replacement therapy, mechanical ventilation, which is also a problem and a driver of our disparities. We are talking about simple things like having water 
running water, soup, sharp box, globes, adequate disposal of waste. And as we can see uh, in these countries in Africa, these are completely inadequate. And of course, uh, we, we cannot even imagine how it is to prevent COVID if you don't have adequate uh, access to running water and soap. The second point is recognition. And to recognize, we need knowledge. And this is a major, there is a major difference between knowledge in high-income countries and low- and middle-income countries. It was also nicely shown among, both among um, uh, lay people and healthcare professionals. But there is a way out of this, which is training, and we know that it works. For instance, there is this very nice report coming from the Maternal Sepsis Awareness Campaign from WHO. And uh, after uh, the training process in 46 low- and middle-income countries, in also high-income countries, uh, they nicely show differences in the perception of the training of healthcare professionals about sepsis, about maternal sepsis. But we have a long way to go. Again, COVID. This is coming from Libya. And uh, they had a survey around uh, uh, among 1,500 healthcare professions. And they, uh, uh, they had to answer a lot of questions in this survey. And they consider it adequate if they have a five uh, points over seven. And as you can see here, regardless the setting of the hospital, knowledge was considered inadequate in, in the vast majority of these healthcare workers about COVID. And again, this other another study showing that this knowledge is related as expected uh, to the educational level of those who are answering the survey. But there is also good news. Uh, there are these three reports coming from Pakistan, from Nigeria, from Egypt, again, showing adequate levels of knowledge. So resolving the knowledge problem is certainly a way to go. But again, it's not only on low income, on low and middle income countries. This is a problem, a, a disparity all over the world. This is a nice report published in uh, JAMA Open, and uh, they are, they, the survey was run in US. And as you can see, when you ask people about uh, COVID, if it spreads via fomites, uh, there is a significant uh, uh, lower knowledge uh, among black people and Hispanic people. And uh, also when you think, when we ask about symptoms of COVID, black people had a worst performance. So again, disparities in knowledge that certainly uh, impact in uh, incidence and outcomes of sepsis. We also have disparities regarding treatment. And to treat, we need resources. This is uh, a uh, report from a one-day prevalence study coming from Brazil uh, in a random sample of Brazilian ICUs. And we were able to show clearly that the mortality rate was higher in uh, the facilities that were considered as a low availability uh, of resource ones. And uh, at least in Brazil, we have enough, or we, I would say, uh, maybe enough ICUs when you compare, for instance, with other parts of the world, where the access to the ICU, it's uh, even a bigger problem. And uh, we know that we need to treat sepsis, recognize early, and treat adequately. And one of the major uh, steps on this treatment 
its early antibiotics. And as we already have discussed here, in Limex, in LMICs, we do have two issues, three issues. First, the high mortality rate. Second, a higher prevalence of healthcare-associated infections. And as nicely discussed, a higher prevalence of multi-drug resistance. So taking all these into account, the need to give antibiotics early and broadly, and the risks of doing this in terms of overuse and uh, resistance, we do have a dilemma. But people would say, well, let's give antibiotics to those patients that are more severely ill because they probably are more at risk. However, and I'm not sure that this is uh, a something that applies to our realities in Lemex, where the mortality rates are also high among less severely ill patients. Uh, we don't have time to go through this, but this is a report. It's unpublished yet uh, on the 50,000 uh, patients in LASI database. And just shortly, uh, we assessed mortality rates uh, according to the time of giving antibiotics in patients at hospital admission and also in patients that develop sepsis during the hospital admission according to the SOFA score. And as you can see, the impact of giving antibiotics, this is only for the patients with pulmonary infection, but this is the same for the, uh, the whole uh, group of patients. So the impact of giving antibiotics earlier, it's much uh, clearer when you have less severely ill patients. And maybe, at least in Brazil, when you give antibiotics earlier in a patient with a SOFA of 8 or 10, the impact in mortality, it's, we, can, we cannot see it. So we uh, have problems because we do need to act early, and we also need to act in patients that are less severely ill if you want to, have, uh, to make a difference in mortality. And just the uh, last few slides about the fourth pillar which is rehabilitation. Once I was in a uh, colloquium about uh, survivorship, and I was asked to tell about uh, follow-up, following up sepsis patients in low and middle-income countries. And the major message I sent on that day, it was two or three years ago, is we, unfortunately, are much ahead of high-income countries in terms of following up patients after discharge. We are still trying to get them alive out of the hospital. And this is, again, a huge disparities uh, uh, between high-income countries, which are already working very nicely with uh, rehabilitation, and us, low- and middle-income countries. But things are changing. Uh, to change uh, behavior, first we need information, and now we are starting to have good quality information on what is happening with our patients after discharge. This is a paper coming from Pakistan, uh, uh, reporting a high mortality rate of these patients after discharge. And we also have data coming from Brazil, these very nice guys from uh, Porto Alegre, from Munho Juventu Hospital. Uh, they did a uh, study together with BrickNet and the Brazilian government following up patients discharged from the ICU, and they have 500 patients that had sepsis, and they followed them for one year, showing a very severe scenario for instance, with 75% of the patients following from, uh, for one year having cognitive dysfunction and also showing that mortality rates after discharge are increasing over the one year of follow-up. So I think we have a lot of things to do in low- and middle-income countries, 
and we all share the same vision. We would like to have a whole world uh, free of uh, avoidable deaths from sepsis. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Flavia. And um, we know all the good work you're doing in uh, Latin America. Um, it would seem from your presentation that um, um, sepsis to a large extent is a socioeconomic disease. And I think you're highlighting that very much, uh, very well when we look at the issue of COVID-19 um, and the present status. However, there are some, um, while socioeconomic disparities um, uh, a major overlay in um, the outcomes there and affliction from COVID and sepsis in general, um, some have stated that there may also be a certain genetic predispositions um, in certain um, different ethnic groups. Um, any evidence of that in your sort of studies or um, review? I, I, uh, I would say that's impossible to say one thing or another. Maybe uh, biological genetic uh, uh, markers certainly are related uh, to how we respond to an infective agent. So yes, we cannot deny that. But as I show uh, in that one single slide, uh, and there are other, other studies also published on this, when you adjust, when you adjust for social economical factors, uh, this disparity, this higher mortality rate, for instance, in black people, it disappears. So if it was genetic, why it would disappear when you adjust for social and economical factors? Yeah, I believe that there are genetical determinants uh, for sepsis, sure. I'm not so sure that they are linked to race or uh, to uh, another uh, ethnicities. Okay. No, no, thanks very much. I think that um, when we look at it, um, as you rightly pointed out, there are inequities. And um, the question is, how do we deal with in these inequities? As Paul Farmer put it very um, well, he said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, that um, borders are like semi-permeable membranes. Actions and uh, sepsis obviously pass through freely, but policies, drugs, um, uh, human interactions, and um, um, government sort of investments stop at the borders. And I think we have a lot to do. But thank you very much. Um, uh, I'd like to close off this session. We've um, really heard a lot about the epidemiology and burden of sepsis um, from some very uh, knowledgeable speakers. We know the issues and a lot more work to be done in uh, um, unraveling the burden of sepsis as well as uh, look challenges and implementing sepsis surveillance and antimicrobial um, uh, resistance surveillance also. Um, so I'd like to thank all the speakers. I'd like to thank the audience. And I'd like to close off the session. Um, good day wherever you are. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who contributed to making this event possible. The next session will be Session 3. Antimicrobial Resistance, an Emerging Global Health Threat, next Tuesday, September 29, 2020. The WSC Spotlight is being brought to you free of charge, so if you enjoyed it, please visit the World Sepsis Day website and sign the World Sepsis Declaration there. It's like a petition against sepsis and also signs you up for World Sepsis Day News, our email newsletter which we send out every five to nine weeks.